Today is Sunday, April 3rd, 2016, and this is episode 155 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Callett. Hey, Jerry. How are you doing, sir? Doing well. How are you? I'm good. And, you know, since it's a new month, uh, we should announce our new sponsorship by Ponymon, one of your favorites. Oh, that's right. Yes. No, I'm just kidding. Of course. <laughs> April Fool's two days late. That's right. Yeah. But uh, no, things are good. It's it's Sunday yet again. It seems like these weeks just fly by, though. Yep. And the weekends are faster. I spent most of my day today taking mulch and taking it off a pallet and spreading around my yard, and somehow that's supposed to do pretty things. I don't understand, but this is what you do when you own a house in the suburb, I guess, is you take wood and spread it over dirt or something. The, li- the life of an InfoSec rock star. I, I guess. I don't, I don't know. So, anyway, before we get started, the thoughts and opinions we have on this podcast are ours and do not represent those of our employers. What you just heard there is Jerry not the least bit interested in my mulch story. That's what that was. Mm, wow. Did you pick up on that? <laughs> hey, we do, have, we do have some exciting news, by the way. Yes, we do. I get, You want to hold no. that as a teaser for the end of the show? Sure. Yes. Yeah. For those who may or may not actually listen to the end. That's right. Mm-hmm. All right. So, um, yeah, we we uh, have a couple stories for you tonight. And uh, the first one comes from the Cooley.com blog. Cooley appears to be a law firm in California. And uh, I, I included this one because it is making, this story is making the rounds right now in the InfoSec community. Uh, basically, the story is that earlier in the year, the the... Uh, California Attorney General released a breach report where they analyzed a couple years of uh, breach data. And there wasn't really anything revolutionary in there. Lots of, you know, the progression of breached records is is going up and whatnot. But um, the thing that is causing all sorts of consternation is that the Attorney General, or at least whoever wrote the report, on behalf of the Attorney General basically is clean, appears to be planting a flag that says that uh, failure to follow the SANS top 20 critical security controls um, constitutes a lack of reasonable security. And Wow. That's a blanket statement for all organizations, regardless of their risk appetite. Yeah. And, and so that's been, that, that has caused a lot of consternation because the SANS top, t- while, it, while it is the top 20, and that's actually not SANS anymore, it's the uh, Center for Internet Security. Um, while it is only 20, uh, actually underneath each one of those controls are, you know, 10 or more, uh, well, I guess 5 to 10 more uh, detailed controls. So it's it's actually like 100, over 100. And some of these are, are pretty stringent and probably really difficult for smaller organizations to uh to to handle and so um you know there's been there's been a lot of uh, a lot of analysis that i've read some people saying oh my gosh this is the the attorney general is essentially uh implementing or or or, you know letting it know there's a a kind of a new sheriff in town and this is this is the standard that you're going to be held to and then uh like on this in this uh this, this particular analysis, they point out that this doesn't create any kind of binding, you know, it's not, it's not a, it's not a new law or anything like that yet. Yeah. But I think the I think the interesting thing is to keep in mind is that when an attorney general of a, of a state or the country gives an indication like this, it might not, um, you know, might not have the force of law. However, it probably does signal an intent uh, that would identify who and when they would go after, uh, you know, a uh, an offender. Well, I wonder if this boils into all sorts of other stuff too. You know, uh, 
cybersecurity uh, insurance or liability in breaches and um, lawsuits looking for guidance. I mean, these sorts of things, it looks like a, you know, a reasonable, quote unquote, control, but is a highly complex thing. And but there's all sorts of organizations and constituents out there who don't fully understand the implications, who are looking for an easy button. So if they can kind of jump onto, well, the Eternal General, General said this, we'll just use this as standard for X. This could have all sorts of implications. Yeah, I mean, it certainly does set precedents. And when when legislators are trying to figure out, you know, is there is there furiously wringing their hands? What do we do to protect our our citizens, you know, the precedents like this will will make an impression on them. I think the other part is the other concern I would have is, you know, when you look around the industry, it's even kind of regardless of uh, of the particular dispensation of this, you know. You, so let's say it does go into enforcement, right? It's it, it's almost up to your interpretation of whether or not you've adopted those controls, right? It's it, you, reasonable people could d- disagree with whether you are actually, wh- whether an organization is actually adhering to the top 20 controls. So I think that's a, you know, that's also a very concerning thing. And so, uh, you know, the future seems really, I don't know if it's bright or bleak, depending on which side of the, the courtroom you're on. Uh, but seeing some of these things play out in uh, th- these detailed you know, information security discussions being vetted in a court is going to, I don't know, it's going to be strange and concerning. Yeah. I, I, it, also, to be clear, by the way, I, I do support and think that the uh, top 20 controls from CIS are pretty valid and they're good advice. They're, I'm not dogging on that at all. I just think a one-size-fits-all approach is really, really difficult. And, uh, you know, we've seen this play out with PCI, as an example. And it's a very stringent, very prescribed uh, approach that has little wiggle room in theory, in writing, about how to do things. But every organization has a different environment and a different business model and a different risk tolerance and a different, uh, you know, PCI matters because it's it's a shared liability model and I get that. But ultimately, I've heard a lot of rumblings that there's movement afoot to move PCI to a more flexible model that's based on a risk-based analysis of, a, of an organization. In other words, you know, if, if PCI says, thou shall get rid of SSLV3, uh, you know, there may be an instance where SSLV3 is necessary and, and needed, but has mitigating controls around it. And, you know, sure, PCI says, oh, you can put in mitigating controls, whatever. But there isn't a lot of wiggle room, and there's not a lot of room for individual uh, sort of risk tolerance and, and risk decision-making around that world. And so when you see these sorts of, this is your minimum requirement for reasonable security, I fear that we're going to start losing some of the baby with the bathwater. Though, to be brutally honest, the, the up and the upside of PCI is it's a big stick that is easy for a lot of organizations to understand, and it's easy to measure against, and it does get people to do things. So maybe this, you know, maybe we're failing on our own, and so maybe we do need the the you know the the stupid easy way of saying you have to meet this stuff, you know, just to to you know you must be this tall to ride kind of thing. I don't know. I. I certainly don't like it, though, when, when legal entities start getting involved in prescribing these sorts of things. Well, I think, I think you said it. Uh, if, if industry keeps failing, you know, and, and in, in the absence of any other fundamental changes that, that change the economics of, of breaches, I would imagine this is almost inevitable. I mean, it might not be this, but something like it is almost inevitable. Yeah. So... I mean, w- w- whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I, you know, I leave that up to the listener. But uh, it, it, I think it's, it's inevitable. And and I, I agree with you. By the way, the the top twenty controls are are quite good, but they are a framework, right? They are right. a list of good best practices that you ought to adopt based on your your organization. Uh, and I, you know, I I do wonder. 
how many organizations actually have them all adopted. And, you know, <laughs> the, I think the, I, I didn't really mention it in the intro to this, but the idea here is that if, if you as an entity are compromised, you know, the, your, uh, whether or not you adhere to these top 20 controls, if, if the, you know, the, the, one of the interpretations of this, the, this statement is, is correct, you know, the attorney general might say, well, you know, you clearly weren't doing your, your due diligence and therefore we're going to come after you. So that's the, right. that's the problem. I don't think, that, I don't think there's any, any um, discussions about, you know, auditing, proactively auditing companies against the SANS top 20. It's more, um, you know, if you're a Target or a Home Depot and, and you know, th- these top 20 controls, I guess, would be seen as something of a safe harbor. But at the same time, though, it's, you know, it, it is also similar to what we've seen with PCI, where, you know, just the fact that you've been breached says that you probably weren't adhering to something. <laughs> Right, so maybe, yeah. Anyway, you know that's what we should do. Instead of pwn to own contest, we should have, uh, you know, pwn PCI to own, and we'll set up completely PCI compliant environments, and then see how many seconds it takes for hackers to own them. <laughs> that's a great idea. It's a great idea. You know, I, I'm not saying PCI is bad. I'm saying it's a minimum. Well, exactly, exactly. Uh, and unfortunately, I think that in the eyes of many organizations, it's that's the high watermark. You know, that's the thing you have to, you you just have to get to that point. Yeah. And it's a it's a difference of perspective, and I see that in a lot of organizations. Uh, you know, there's a especially in bigger organizations where you have a policy setting body, and you have or you know the the line business has to comply with that policy. There's often that m- that missed. Um, miscommunication where the policy is the minimum standard and it's considered to be the high watermark. And I think PCI is the same and many other things are too. So um, anyway, moving on to our next story. And this one comes from CSO Online and the title is Chinese Scammers Take Mattel to the Bank, Fishing Them for $3 Million. In a all-too-common thread now, uh, this is another example where the CEO, someone purporting to be the CEO, sent an email to somebody in the finance company saying, oh my gosh, we need to pay a big bill to a, a, a bank in China and um, you know, and the, and the payment was processed. What was interesting in this one and, and unique, because it, you know, the, in concept it's similar to things we've talked about quite a lot lately. What's unique about this one is that apparently... Mattel had a process in place to avoid this. They they required two executives to sign off, you know, and and there was a there was a definitive list of, you know, who was who could approve that. Uh, so 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 how's that process working out for him? Yeah, well, so the CEO. Uh, sent or uh, someone apparently the real CEO or, or the fake CEO. The f- well, see here's where it gets a little complicated because apparently it's not explicitly stated, but it is apparent that the attacker here compromised the 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 work email, the business email of the CEO, okay, and then sent a note or you know sent an email to this finance vice president. Saying you know you need to pay this three million dollar bill. Well, so the the receiving vice president looked at you know looked kind of said, oh okay, this makes sense. That CEO, by the way, is brand new to the company. Kind of makes sense. He's an approved party. So am I. Right. We we our process requires two people to approve it two people on the authorized list to approve such a payment the ceo is one i'm another i can approve it mm. let me just say that's Yet not he, how this is supposed to work no, no that's not that's not how that's supposed to work because she didn't actually do any checking or any sort of investigation for her own mindset to know that this was an actual valid uh transfer she just followed orders 
Well, and, yeah, and and I I think if you have a if you have a process, I mean this is this is what separation of duties is all about, right? You can't you can't have someone be an an, an originator of a transaction and the approver. It just you will end up with this stuff either accidental yeah. or intentional. That's said by somebody who really likes red tape and doesn't know how to get things done in today's fast, high turnover environment. Yeah, that's true, especially when you... <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm going to go set up a bank. I'm going to go set up a bank in China because apparently this is... There's some money there. Why you got a dog on finance, you know, using DevOps? Why? <laughs> You're just, oh, you're just an old, angry man who doesn't understand what it takes to be successful in today's world. You're, you're right. You are absolutely right about that. So, um, in in uh, working in Mattel's favor, by the way, uh, the transfer actually happened on a bank holiday, and then the vice president apparently mentioned in passing the transaction to the CEO, who uh, denied having requested it, and uh, and Mattel was able to contact the banks and put a stop to the transaction and in fact uh didn't lose any money apparently so that's um that's lucky this is a bit of a shark attack type story where we're we're seeing all the instances of this happening we don't know how often a a bank transfer like this goes without a hitch right We, we this these sorts of Phishing scams and, and, you know, illicit transfers could be 0.001%. We don't know. But the knee-jerk reaction is, well, maybe we put a hold on these sorts of transfers for 72 hours for confirmation, which would, again, slow down, you know, honestly, seriously, slow down business. Um, But that's sort of the thought I have initially. But then again, it could be such a small portion of these sorts of transfers that that sort of bank level, (laughs) you know, heavy handed way of dealing with this problem may not make a lot of sense. Well, I I think the challenge for for companies is that, you know, in the case of in the case of Mattel here, if they hadn't caught it in time or the bank hadn't been closed the next day. They would have just been out three million dollars. There is right. you can't go to your bank and it's not like a consumer. You're not going to get that money back. No, um, I get uh, it. Unless I... unless there's you know some other thing going on. Um, now, having said that, um, uh, cyber insurance. I know that there are insurance policies that help to mitigate some of this, but I, you know again, I think that I I would imagine. I don't know for sure. It, it it seems like you probably you probably want to have a, a a functioning separation of duties process in place as a first step, and I don't really think you have to have the whole seventy two hour hold. I think you just have to have a a, a a rational process. Well, first off, relying on email only seems to be a weakness. So even if she had replied back, even if they had some sort of verification process where she replies back to the CEO and says, "Are you sure you want me to do this?" If the bad guy had already breached the bank, uh, that that particular bank CEO's email account, the bad guy could have easily said, yes, now do it now. How dare you question me? Exactly. So that's not going to do. There seems to, you know, maybe in addition to two people um, approving, they need two ways of communicating this before it's approved. Uh, One that is very, very difficult for a external third party to replicate. I think that's the key right there. I mean, it's yeah. um, yes, kind of like the... Something non-digital, probably. Yeah. He, now, yeah, this slows right. down business. Let's be honest. That will slow down business. But, hey, you know, yep, it's finding that balance. Now, I would also say, to, to your point about not not really having clarity on how often this happens, it's not, it's not entirely clear how this particular case came to light. Uh, but I would imagine, and I, I, I know that in most cases, if you are a public company, at least here in the U.S., and y- you lose a significant amount of money, I mean, it's, clearly there's a threshold. If if you know if you get crypto lacquered and you pay a thousand dollars, and you're you know a multi-million dollar company, it's it's not going to be reportable, um, probably. But you know, if you're a if you're a Mattel and you lost three million bucks, you know your shareholders typically have a right to know that and you're going to have to disclose it. So um, I think that's probably the thing that, that would cause us to, to know more about these things. 
but you know we are i think it is the shark story right we are hearing about every one of these this one this one was it wasn't spectacular compared to some of the other ones we've talked about in recent times you know the uh the, the uh, central bank of bangladesh for instance recently you know it was almost a billion dollars uh the, the thing soon you know billion here billion there it starts to be you know real money that's true uh, the thing that was unique to this this story for me was that this company clearly made an attempt to to stave off this kind of thing, uh, but didn't do a very good job. You know, they they, they their the process was was not well run. Well, and this brings up an interesting point: is once you put a process in place, do you actually test that process under duress? Mm, yep. Good point. Well, and they did, right? I, I, I bet you, I will bet you that Mattel's process for this is a little different today than it was a couple weeks ago. Right. right. Uh, you know, I, I just, I just think about it because you know this is what we do for a living. How often do these sorts of things get tested with a realistic simulation of an attack? I. This particular kind of thing, I doubt hardly ever. I mean, you, when, when you talk about IT yeah. type stuff, you know, we have pen tests and red teams and things like that. But this is a this is a business process kind right. of thing, and I've never heard of a you know red team exercise on the finance department of a company. Not this. Not saying that it ha- doesn't happen. I'm right. saying I've never heard of it. No, me either. But, you know, we've seen a rash, too, of a great deal of phishing scams going after W-2 information in the last couple of months. Yep. Uh, how often is your HR team tested for that sort of thing? Same, same story, right? Probably almost never. And they're not, you know, living in this world. So how, you know, how are they, you know, you could do all the phishing training you want, but the reality is the bad guys are smart enough to find a way well i here's the here's the thing i think that the the future is is bright for uh you know for pen pen testers and red teamers because you know as i think as technologies become more diffused into organizations the you know the attacks are becoming less about the technology and more about the you know the the money and the business processes and so from that perspective, I think that it's almost inevitable that we're going to have to see <clears throat> testing move from being tech centric to business process centric. And, and so to your point, I would imagine at some point we will see tests run against finance departments and HR departments and, and this and that because we are, you know, we're seeing this in spades. I mean, almost every freaking week we have a, a whole spate of stories about du- stolen W-2s and, um, you know, c- CEOs emailing finance people to, to transfer money and, and significant amounts of money at that. And this these things are easy and profitable for attackers to pull off. And, you know, I, 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 I've got to believe that the average pen testing and and business consulting companies if they aren't already are starting to offer this that kind of a thing i don't know i you know yeah, I don't I don't have any know. insight but uh, um you know and aside from maybe a, a pen test also perhaps or a red team just a business process review from somebody who thinks like a bad guy yeah here's a gap in your process here's how i could exploit this you know we, we right when you're dealing with this amount of money it seems prudent yeah Oh, I, absolutely. And, you know, I think the, uh, the, the challenge is that a lot of, a lot of finance controls, I mean, f- finance controls are, are very old and kind of battle tested, but my view is they are very, very focused on the, you know, the individual bad actor. They, they don't often have any compensation for collusion when you start adding the technology into the mix, you know now you have you know, you, you kind of have the the opportunity for a collusion like, I mean, even if it's not actual collusion, you know. Uh, you just like saying the word collusion. I do collusion, collusion, collusion. There you go. 
It's a collision of collusion. I feel better. So <laughs> anyway, um, that's the, the, the those were the two stories. Now I know you had wanted to talk pen testing. So, well, yeah, and this last story actually brings that up as well. And you know, a lot of various different compliance and whatnot often regulates a pen test, but a pen test can be a thousand different things for a thousand different companies. So, yeah, I just wanted to spend a few minutes talking about what you think are best practices for pen tests, how they are useful, how they are uh, the right way to, to use them, and, you know, what you've seen, and, and uh, you know, if you've talked to Bob about some of the stuff he's seen, and, uh, you know, it's it's something that can be a useful tool, but it's also something I've seen as a checkbox that doesn't necessarily provide a lot of value. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, I, I've seen I've seen them. Uh, to be honest, I see them done badly more often than I see them done well, and I would say probably far more often. And my my view is that probably the most common problem we see is uh, really two things. One is misunderstanding what a pen test is. Uh, and then, and then number two, artificially constraining the scope of a yeah, of a pen absolutely. test, and you know, uh, that's a big one I had in my notes too. So, so those are the two things. Now, I think that the other, um, you know, the other point that I've seen is organizations who aren't willing to deal with the things that are found in a pen test, um, and and so. You know, the, the obviously a lot of times with organizations will, will will undertake a pen test in an attempt to get more budget or try to drive a, a particular change or build a platform for some new technology or or what have you. But if you know if if the if if you know there's a ton of problems and you're just going to spend a bunch of money on a pen test, it may be more beneficial to spend money improving your controls um i i there in the in the reason is that to do a good pen test it is expensive right yeah. you know um you can find cheap pen tests but they're not at least in my experience they're not typically a real pen test you know they're they're a glorified vulnerability scan yeah and and that's the you know i think that's the those two things, like I said, the the scope and defining what a what a pen test is, are are really the two big keys. What about you? What what, what do you think? Yeah, no, I think I think you're absolutely correct, and you know, I think you you hit on the the three major issues I see as well. I I am a fan of doing penetration testing in general. Uh, I think that it can be useful, but it's a weird psychology behind it. I, I think the reason that pen tests work is it's visceral for executives to understand. Oh, so we hired some, you know, good guy hackers and they were able to break in and get our payroll data. Okay, well we gotta do something about that. And it's interesting because that exposes a couple of problems with the way I think organizations deal with InfoSec. First off, for whatever reason, and this is across the board, not just pen tests, Companies and, and senior leadership companies seem more inclined to listen and accept recommendations and findings from a third party, a neutral third party, than their own people internally who are saying the same thing. Yeah. Yep. Uh, because of politics, so, because of whatever. It's a very well-known thing. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a constant problem. So engaging a, a third party to do a pen test can help facilitate that conversation. But you, you bring up a great point, which is almost every single pen test has these artificial constraints that a bad guy truly couldn't care less about. Exactly. So, so if your executives are assuming that, and even you're not executives, that this pen test is truly simulating what a bad guy can do and is, is, is covering all these sorts of angles, it's not. It's not at all. And, and depending on what sort of goals or sort of mission you're giving this red team, Keep in mind that even if you take what they find and you immediately deal with that finding, or that may be only one of many ways the bad guys could get you. 
So yes, you've dealt with what the pen testers, the, the technique they used to to achieve whatever goal they had. But that doesn't mean that there aren't a thousand other ways that could have done the same thing. So all that being said, I'm not dogging pen test. I'm saying that most organizations don't have the stomach to do it in a way that I think is truly valuable. Uh, and, and to me, you know, what what I would do, what I would look for is an extremely creative and experienced uh, pen test team and, and one who's seen a lot, done a lot. And what I think you're really paying for when you're going to an external third party is their creativity and getting outside the boundaries of your own assumptions in your own echo chamber. You're getting to a person into an organization who doesn't have your politics and your view and your assumptions and your bias around your organization and doesn't care. Right. So ideally, you go to that third party and you say, OK, I want you to do an attack simulation against us. And all the gloves are off. Everything's on the table. Maybe except destructive stuff. Maybe. Because that's really, really, really tough for uh, executives to sign off on. Right. So you usually end up with no DDoS. You end up with nothing, nothing that could down a critical system intentionally. Which, again, are not constraints the bad guys have. So, uh, and then ideally, you are tapping into that creativity of that third party who can come at you sideways, who, who doesn't have all the assumptions you have about what works and what doesn't work, uh, and, can, and can just show you the holes in your thinking and your logic. Uh, but then, you know, the key is to have minimal constraints around that. Uh, you know, as part of uh, an attack simulation, maybe they want to do a phishing campaign or a spear phishing campaign. Most of the time, the constraints from executives, are, you know, these top 20 executives are off limits. Again, um, bad guys wouldn't, wouldn't do that. They probably would go after those, those top 20 folks if they, if they had that in their, in their goals. So uh, that's frustrating to me sometimes when you see that sort of thing. Uh, but it's inevitable. But I think you also touched on the last, on your last point, which is how do you deal with those findings? And this is key. So a, a good pen test team, of course, is going to give you really good documentation about why whatever they did worked or didn't work and what their findings were. And ideally, you've got internal folks who understand this in business context and can understand, okay, what this means and can help make recommendations. But as I've seen over and over and over again, typically what happens is when you get the result from the pen test, it becomes a, uh, you know, a political pissing match between the different silos in the organization, as opposed to an exercise of actually fixing something. In fact, I've seen you know organizations where the executives go through all the stages of grief right before they really are ready to deal with this problem. Um, and a pen test, typically, a good pen test can find far more problems than you can quickly fix. And some of them are systemic, you know, things like how you segmented your network environment and how you run your AD domains and how you, you know, which are big, big, big deals to fix. Right. So I, I think pen tests can be really helpful if they're run properly, uh, you know, given everything we've said. But I also think that they are far too often a checkbox where someone will say, pen test this one website. That's the, that's the biggest... Um... By the way, the biggest thing I often see is uh, is an organization is tr tries to scope a pen test against a particular asset. You right. know, like okay, I have this in, in, a, in a vacuum. Yeah, in I have silo, this. Right? I have this server, right? And I want you to try. I want you to run a pen test on this server, not anything next to it, not the people who manage it on that server. And you know, effectively, I would certainly. There's value if they, you know, if the if the, the the pen tester can find something, you know, with that. That's that's a valuable thing. But I think at the same time, when the test is over, if you know, you, you may find um, inevitably, even in that limited context, an, an attacker can usually often get in. A pen tester can often get in, uh, and and you know now now you got some things to go fix. You, you walk away or the, the leadership of the company or the, the department walk away thinking, okay, you know, here we go. We're, we had the pen test. They found some stuff and we, we fixed that stuff and, and, and you know, check box and, and we're good. And the, the problem is 
that's not how attackers work. I mean, that's not how the, how many times in in the you know it's in the years that we've been running this podcast, how many times have we talked about a story where the bad guys got in through a vulnerability. It's not it's not an incredible amount, you know, or, or at least on, on infrastructure vulnerabilities. That's true. They usually come at you through. Uh, phishing, spear phishing, waterhole. I mean, there may be some vulnerabilities, but it's not like they hack through the corporate firewall. You know, they're usually yeah. coming at you from from sideways. Right, or it's obscure, you know, obscure web application bugs and and, and things like that. It's some, your vendors some, or some dev server that somebody forgot to patch or <laughs> right, yeah, right. And and that's the kind of stuff that goes back to that thing where I was saying earlier about. Get out of your own assumptions and get out of your own bias where a third party can help you figure out, find those and f- figure that out. Yeah. So that's, I think those are, those are some interesting uh, perspectives that you can get. Um, you know, I, from, a, from what you get out of a pen test, I, I think that in addition to the, you know, the, the obvious finding failures in your, uh, both in your configuration and and um, you know environmental uh, you know, perspectives. The other thing I think that's is very useful uh, if you do a pen, tra- uh, pen test structure properly is to test your uh, incident detection and response capabilities. And so that's I, I you know I'm not entirely sure that a lot of organizations take full advantage of that capability. And by the way, that kind of says that those tests are often not done with you know, the full awareness of everybody, right? There's a, in, in order for it to be um, effective at testing those processes, you probably don't want it, you don't want to let people know that that's, that's going on. Yeah, absolutely. If you're, if you're sort of trying to test not only your, your technical defenses, but also your capabilities from a, defense and detection standpoint uh, it depends on what you're trying to test but i i love the idea of going at a pen test with very 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 few people knowing about it and giving as much of a real world uh, you know if you're going as a, an attack simulation opportunity for uh, to exercise your entire organization and see where your gaps are before the bad guys find them yeah and not not just not just the defense gaps but also the the detection and response yeah the challenges of course egos come into play yeah yep and people get frustrated and defensive when you're auditing their capability and you know i've seen some response teams or blue teams feel that they're being tricked or they've been you know it's not fair that you know the red team can come to us and it's true the red teams have all the advantage well, okay, let me take that back before we get too far. All the advantage is a strong, strong term. There, there are certain things like defender's advantage and blue team advantage, and that's a whole different debate. Okay, go on, sorry. I, I, you know, I will say that I think a lot of blue team people feel like there is that home court advantage. However, uh, I, I'm not exactly, I, I don't think it says, I don't think it's what people think it is. Um, because defenders typically don't think about their environments in the same way that attackers do. And that's and they're typically a lot busier. Well, that's true. And they attackers don't have metrics. Well, maybe some right. of them do these days. <laughs> reports. Yeah, and reports and PowerPoints and right. timesheets and <laughs> utilization to worry about and, and, you know, diversity training and whatever else that they have to, to, to uh, obligate just other obligations. Um, you know, I boy, I forgot where I was where I was going with that, but um, I I think that we have to we have to be reasonable in understanding that if you're hiring a good penetration testing firm, they're going to get in, right? Because that's what you're paying them to do. Yeah, yeah, it, I would say so. I would it, hope so. Right, and if they don't get in, one might ask if you've hired. a a competent firm right and so that kind of says that you your the management of your company if you are responsible for establishing one of these tests it's it's really incumbent on you to set the proper expectations that once you get that report 
you know, leave the pitchforks and torches in the closet because that's not what this is about. It's not a it's not a search for the guilty. Oh my gosh, who you know who failed? It is about continual improvement. It's about finding things that need to to be addressed and then prioritizing them. And by the way, some things you may say, you know, we just can't address that, or we're gonna have yeah. That's to... a that's a business choice right. at that point. And I think a good pen test is gonna find stuff. Regardless of your ability to fix it, that's a different that's a different discussion. Right. Um, I agree with you in general. You want to come up with a mindset of, hey, we, we don't want to. This isn't a, a witch hunt. If you're dealing with the results of a of an external pen test, and in general, I, I agree with you. The, the only thing I bristle at is, is you hear this as common management advice, right? Don't, you know, don't. It's not anybody's fault. We're just here to fix the problem. Well. Yeah, sometimes it is somebody's fault. And sometimes people are incompetent and they need to be fired. Well, I, I, okay, I, I just got to throw that out there because uh, that's that, is, that is something I hear all the time and it drives me batshit crazy because not everybody is good at their job. And sometimes people need to be held accountable to their failures. Now, bringing this back into the context of a pen test, th- this is more of something like, hey, you've had this pointed out for three pen tests in a row. You still haven't fixed it after you've been ordered to fix it. Pack of shit and get out. That is what I mean by, you know, held accountable. But not wow, you know, this completely, we didn't expect this and we didn't find it, so Bob, you know, AD admin, you're fired. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying if if you have incompetent people and they've been told that they need to do things better and that sort of stuff, sometimes it is the fault of the person is all I'm trying to say. Yeah, well, I, I, certainly certainly that is true. I, I and will I am s- cranky bastard, I understand that. I, I will say that if you, you know, if, if it becomes a common thing for people to get fired in the wake of a pen test, you can expect pen tests to become pretty damn unpopular no, activities. You're right. you're right. And and I probably should have divorced that, that rant, mini rant from this conversation because you're correct. Because if, if there becomes a negative feedback loop in terms of personal career around these things, much like metrics uh, be- becoming a, you know, you're measured against metrics, people start gaming your metrics. Uh, you do have to be careful with that. I, I agree. I agree. I-, I just say in general, whenever I hear somebody say, well, you know, we're not here to point fingers or, you know, to, to blame anybody in particular, every so often it is somebody's fault. <laughs> yeah. Now, now I will say one thing that I think is particularly important too. Well, really two things. Number one is you need to look for repeat things, right? And and so it is one thing to say, okay, we found that we weren't patching that server or we weren't, you know, changing default IDs for this one application or whatever, because it felt it wasn't on the radar or whatever, right? One of the things you want to look at is and we talked about this, I think, in on, on the episode where we were driving back from DerbyCon, right? The kind of the maturity level of uh, of um, of pen testing, and you want you don't want to see that same finding next year, right? Or ne- next time you run the test, if if you wait, if you as an organization have decided to fix that problem, true, yes, yeah, that's right. And then the other you know, the other point I'd say is. Um, looking at the you know who's testing right so one of the things that you should be thinking about if you are serious about setting up a pen testing process is evaluating um, the effectiveness of your pen testing uh, firm and determining if you should have other companies right so so one of the common things for mature organizations is to rotate testing companies and, oh, great point! I completely forgot about that. Absolutely. And yep. the and the reason is that uh, it should be pretty obvious, right? But uh, different companies and different people, personalities within those companies, uh, will focus on different things. Right? I mean, it's kind of like a you know any kind of government auditor, right? They'll they'll have their own little pet thing that they like to go to they like to go hammer on. And if you if you expose your environment to different kinds of pen testers, you're gonna you know, ultimately, you're going to get a better co- you're going to get better coverage. Um, the other thing that I will say, and this is something that I saw in uh, in the FFIC's recent cybersecurity assessment tool, which I thought was, when you think about it, after I say it, it, it will just be very intuitive. But 
um, it, having some kind of an independent function in your organization, setting the scope, and we, we did talk a little bit about this before, but having, having some independent organization, not, not necessarily your security organization and not your IT organization or whoever's delivering your IT services, they shouldn't be the ones necessarily setting the scope of your pen test. It should be somebody who's kind of divorced from the, you know, that, those functions because otherwise you, I, I think that you get into that uh, conflict of interest, you know, the, you know, well, don't pen test that, you know, because that's, you know, that that's out of scope. It, it, right. Absolutely. You know, we, we, that's the tough, that's the dev environment. We, you know, but that's where you're going to get hacked, right? So, and the bad guys don't care. They'll pivot and look for holes and look for ways to take six hops to get to what they really, really care about. Um, yes. You know, but you've one other thing you brought up uh, that I wanted to just add a little bit onto is using different companies. One thing I will find is that the skill set of different companies is, and, and different people within those companies is also highly variable. So, you know, it really, really depends on the methodology and the skill set of the people involved who are doing the testing as well. And it's really tough to, to find really good quality pen testers that don't come at a premium price. And even if they are expensive, they may suck. You know, it just depends on the organization. They, these guys are, are in high demand. And, and, you know, I've seen a lot of turnover and rotation of, of those guys at, 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 you know, high-end companies. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. So so when you when you engage a, a pen testing company, what do you do? I mean, how, how do you figure out if, if they're uh, worth their salt? That's a tough one. I mean, I typically will ask for copies of their deliverables, and I'll look to see how they explain the deliverable and how they explain the findings. Uh, I will typically try to find other people who've worked with them and talk to them off the record. Uh, sometimes previous experience, it's sometimes you got to try it and see if you like them. And, you know, it, it's sometimes it's a, it's a crapshoot when, when you hire somebody. But I think I think part of it is, ideally, don't just talk to the sales guy at the company. Try to talk to the people who are actually be doing the testing. Figure out their skill set, their experience, their background. Try to understand what it is they plan to do. Uh, usually, in talking with the organization, you can get an idea of where their strengths and weaknesses are. You can usually find out if they understand business and if they understand more than just technology. Because a, a good pen tester, I think, goes far beyond just knowing how to, to breach a box. They need to understand that breach in context of the business to get at the assets that matter. You know, if we're doing a sort of an unbounded attack simulation. Uh, for instance, if I'm working for a bank, you know, or, or, or whatnot, and I happen to work for, for, for a credit card processor, you know, maybe I would go to, a, to a, an outside company that I might hire for a tax simulation and say, I want you to get my credit card data. And that may be all I tell them. And then interview them a bit and say, how would you go about that, do you think? Or what do you, you know, what do you think that would take? Mm -hmm. And start to get an idea of how they think through that problem uh, and, and can evaluate them there. But, uh, you know, the challenge is with, with an organization like a, a good high-end pen test company, they're selling their reputation. And in many ways, that reputation is dependent on their process and their people. Those people rotate a lot, in my opinion. So even from year to year, that same company could be highly variable in their capabilities. So it's tough. I don't know that I've got a magic answer to that problem. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you, my, my experience has been, and, and this is similar to just general IT consulting, uh, smaller companies will often... Uh, you know, they, they will often have some of the more boutique talent. The larger companies, my experience has been that unless you are really astute and are on your on top of your game as a customer, will uh, you know that they are they tend to be body shops and will as you as you mentioned they have lots of turnover, and so they're they're constantly trying to cut new new talent into the into the rotation and you really do have to be careful that you're not getting um 
you know, even if you have, if you even if you go with a highly reputable pen testing company, you want to make sure that you're getting someone who's very experienced, right? And not, not someone who's kind of fresh out of college or what have you. Um, well, and to be fair, often when you're engaging with a, with a higher end pen test, there's probably multiple people working on the project. Yes. And some might be yes. lower experience and right. you want at least one pretty senior guy though. Right. And I would also say that some of the warning signs, and uh, you, you mentioned something that I would do or have done is asking for copies, you know, anonymized copies of uh, other deliverables they've given to other organizations. And some of the things you want to look out for are output from tools. If you see the output of uh, like a, you know, of a core or canvas or something like that, you, you probably want to keep looking um, because that, that just says they're, they're, they're probably tool jackies and you really want someone or some people who are applying that more of that attacker mindset rather than just trying to run what effectively are fancy vulnerability scanners. Well, let's, let's, be fair. There's time when that makes sense. If I, if I'm in and I can drop a Cali box in your environment, that's useful to me as an attacker. And there, are, there may be tools out there that speed up. I, I don't, I don't need a, a pen tester who home grows all of his tools to be a good pen tester. I just need them to know when and how to use the right tools and when to pivot out of them into something manual. And I think that's the that's the key, right? Is there's a there's a kind of like there are, you know. <laughs> Security tool operators, fire you know, firewall admins, are not necessarily doesn't make you a security architect. I think knowing how to use Kali doesn't make you a pen tester. Knowing right. how to use you know, Core Impact doesn't make you a pen tester. It, there's a lot more to it than that. And certainly, there you know, there's there's value if that's all you get. There's there's probably still some value, but you're not you're still not getting that full spectrum. Uh, inspection in the way that an an actual attacker would would be trying to get into your network. So, um, you know, th- those are the those are the I think the things that that I would say you know watch out for. Um, you look at you know, f- do some do some research on who would actually b- be performing your testing. You know, do they have do they present? Do they do they talk? You know, one of the things I would also say is you know, kind of like trying to gauge the skill set of the people who would be uh, running your test. Do they run around to conferences and talk about experiences with customers they've had? I mean, are they going to come, are they going to go next, you know, in, in a couple of months and talk about your company at a, at a conference? You probably don't want that. Yeah. Well, that's a problem with salespeople in general. And I'm not talking, you know, I'm just saying that how many times have I seen sales guys violate NDAs because they want to drop names of the company they're working with to some new prospective client? That uh, just drives me batshit crazy. But, you know, that is that is what it is. But, uh, you know, one thing I'd love to hear is, is hear some feedback from the listeners, too. I know a ton of folks out there probably have, have thoughts on this. So, you know, maybe we'll we'll throw that out there and do a follow-up. With uh, with some listener uh, comments. Yeah, yeah. So if you have any uh, ideas on on how to evaluate pen testers, or how, you know how you use pen testing, how you um, how you handle the results, how you scope it, whatever whatever ideas you have on pen testing, send us an email to info at defensivesecurity.org or hit us up on Twitter uh, at defensivesec and be interested to, uh, to to hear that feedback. So shall we drop our big news? Yes, go go ahead. I will uh, I'll let you. So, some of you may have heard that O'Reilly Security, O'Reilly Publishing, uh, has a, a security arm, and they are launching a conference dedicated purely to defensive security. Uh, and uh, it's funny because they actually use that term, and we were we were quite happy that that we can now ride some of their coattails because they're even using a hashtag of defensive sex. So we're hoping people will confuse that with our Twitter handle, and you know, we'll be more famous. By more famous, I mean more than our cousins knowing that we exist. Um, 
Anyway, long story short, they are launching uh, a new conference. It'll be in New York City in late October. In fact, I think the the there's a couple days of training. There's a couple days of OpenCon um, that will be uh, right around Halloween. In fact, I think on Halloween in New York City. And they have asked Jerry and I to help moderate and uh, work on the Ignite Talks portion of the conference. So we will be there and helping to uh, hopefully make it a good conference. That's right. That's so right. this is all fresh, brand new. I don't even know if we're allowed to say this yet. We might not be able to, but uh, we oh, haven't well. we haven't signed any contracts yet. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so technically, sent this offer after us saying this. So technically, can't um, get in legal trouble yet, right? That's true. Uh, but this is right up our alley. This is exactly why Jerry started the podcast and why we do this every week is is uh, to help blue teams and defenders. And that's uh, it fit very well with the philosophy that O'Reilly is, is promoting around this. And I guess they just launched a second one in Amsterdam, interestingly enough. So I right. uh, don't know a ton about it yet. Uh, you know, and, and to be fair, there's, there's, you know, this is all sort of just because we have similar philosophies. There's no money changing hands here that I know of. Uh, this is just, uh, um, they're, they're doing. They're helping the community in a in a way that we agree with. So uh, we wanted to be involved, and it sounds like fun. So uh, late October, I think October thirtieth and thirty first in New York City, we will uh, be helping uh, run the ignite tracks. And I I guess we'll figure out what that means over the next coming weeks. That's right. And uh, you know I I get zero money from O'Reilly, right? Um, however, in fact, you give. Lots of money too. Around. That's that was is exactly what I was going to say. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I, was, I didn't mean to steal your joke. I was gonna I was gonna plug their uh, the, they have uh, this service called um, Safari Books Online, which I've been a subscriber to for a while. It's it's relatively expensive. Uh, it's like four or five hundred bucks a year, but they give you access to uh, you know not only their library but lots of other publishers too, like Nostarch and and others. And it's a uh, you know the the apps are somewhat limited. I think you can read it on your PC, and there's an iPhone app and an Android app, and and that's basically it. You know there there isn't like a Kindle version of it, but um, it's it's a really a great thing. I I probably saves money even though it's so expensive. You know I I if if you go through more than about ten books a year, you probably uh, come out ahead. So I think that's a really a great resource. It's, it, it is very current titles. There's also pre-release books. It's heavily slated towards, um, technology and security. Uh, along with that, they, ha they also have a, um, uh, new newsletter, an email newsletter. I think it's weekly for security, which I thought they've, uh, um, the most recent one had a really interesting article about risk assessment. So, I'll, I'll put the link into uh, into the show about that show notes about that. Um, anyway, should be fun. Hopefully, we get to see some people. You know, I I, I certainly am passionate about trying to help um, better the the security industry. So I'm you know I'm going to look for opportunities to do that. Indeed. So, so hopefully, uh, you know, we didn't sort of break the news too early, and this all. You know, <laughs> all works out. Yeah, it, and and if it doesn't, just ignore everything I just we just right. said. Yeah. So just to be clear, the conference is October thirtieth through November second this year. Good deal. In so, New York City. And I will be fresh off my honeymoon. So. There you go. My, that'll be. And there's a lot of good people involved with this. If you look at like the committee members and. Um, it's kind of the who's who of InfoSec. I, I mean, especially now that we're here. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll eventually get on the e-list of InfoSec celebrities. We're getting there. Slowly but surely. Yep. Um, anyway. Yeah. Cool. Uh, that's all I got. Thank you very much. And uh, thank you all for listening. Thank you again to our Patreon sponsors. I, I'm, I continue to be amazed at people who donate money to help the show keep show the show going um just so you know that we have more than a few listeners now and so the the bandwidth that is required to run this show is just oppressive <laughs> so um yeah that it, it, it is uh, it is definitely much appreciated 
uh, I'm, I'm, we've been using that money to to help offset the the hosting costs and you know pay for some of the equipment we bought in the past and and in the future I think we're we're looking at doing some uh, creative and innovative things to help the industry out so uh, anyway uh, thank you again for that and if you like the show give us some love on iTunes we we really like that it gets our you know gets us bumped up higher in the in, in the ratings and well that just makes us feel good. Uh, you can follow the show on Twitter at DefensiveSec. You can follow Mr. Gallant on Twitter at Lurg, me on Twitter at MaliciousLink. Uh, you can get the show notes with links to the stories we talked about on our website, www.defensivesecurity.org. And with that, we will talk again next week. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks as always for listening. See ya. Bye. Bye. How long is this going to keep going? We're seeing into all these things. I mean, isn't this going to be done soon? So the title of the report will be Put Your Big Boy Pants On and Pass Your Shit. Right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.